Baptist churches were very few in uh, Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, One ten. But uh, <coughs> while we were there, Ed uh, uh, <coughs> drove out to. Uh, Oh, a small congregation that had somebody on Nashville preach on Sundays and Ed drove out there on, it was about seven or eight miles from Antioch. And I believe it was Antioch, if I missed the name, it won't be that important. <laughs> and on Tuesday nights for Bible study. And um, while we were, were at Charlotte, uh, there, <clears throat> there was not a congregation, a sound congregation in Clarksville, Tennessee, but there was a military base there, so one was needed. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the elders' daughters and her husband had moved to Charlotte to uh, uh, Clarksville, so they were driving back and forth to to Charlotte, you know, for services, which was some twenty-five miles. Mm. <laughs> so. Uh, I don't remember his name, but some preacher up in Middleton, uh, up in Kentucky, mm -hmm. south part of Kentucky, and Ed uh, got together and uh, went to Clarksville and uh, found one man that was a Christian, but he was unfaithful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he was interested. He was conservative, and his family were conservative, and he was in his thinking, but he had just got so discouraged, you know, with the liberal churches. But he was interested in getting back in services. And um, so, uh, all of them together, Ed and this preacher and uh, and the the young couple that were driving to Charlotte, mm -hmm. they uh, they found a a place and uh, a storefront they could rent and uh, Ed went over and preached the first Sunday that they met and other people that uh, that did some preaching. Brother Joe Larkin mm -hmm. was one of them. He was an old man at that time, but uh, he did some preaching. He drove over there and preached some on Sunday and, and other people to get them going. And they had went on Thursday night for a Bible study. <coughs> 
and uh, they got Gilbert Holt mm -hmm. to move there to preach. Full time, like for him to take over? Yeah, full time. Sixty-seven. We moved to uh, Grenada. Okay. In the summer of sixty-seven. Oh, sorry. You mean you did two? Yeah, I thought she had eight. Okay. Oh no, we were just on Cape. Conservative churches were more scattered in Mississippi than they had been in Tennessee. This means in 67 that Carla is five and then Martin would be uh, well when we moved to, to Grenada uh, mm -hmm. Eddie and Vicky were in the They had gone second, third, and fourth. They were in the fifth grade. We okay. moved in the summer before school started. Mm -hmm. Nettie and Mickey were in the fifth grade, and Martin was in the fourth. Okay. And Carl had not started school yet. Okay. So fifth, fourth, and then Carla was not not, not started kindergarten. Started school. Well, mm -hmm. they didn't have kindergarten in public school back then, and most of the kindergartens were in church, denominational churches, so none of my older children went to kindergarten. Right. But they learned a lot at home. Mm -hmm. Right, as they do. <laughs> as, uh, well, when, when Eddie and Vicki were in the first, no, before they started first grade, mm -hmm. in the summer we went to a singing out is it Bethesda mm -hmm. out from Hansville? Mm -hmm. And it, I noticed this woman sitting down the aisle. Did this is nothing you need to write? But oh, I like these these little stories. Mm -hmm. Well, and she kept looking at them, and when it was over, she said, uh, "How old are those children?" <laughs> I said, "Well, they're six. They'll start first grade." She said, I teach first grade. And she said, Eddie and Vicki had, had turned, the, when the number was announced, they had turned to it in their books. And uh, she said, I teach first grade, and I have 
children, of course, didn't have kindergarten then. Mm -hmm. And I have children that don't know the difference in one and two. Mm -hmm. She said, it seems to me sometime the mother would have said, get me two potatoes. <laughs> right. But she was just talking about how some children are completely mm -hmm. unprepared. Right. And um, their idiot Vicky could uh, turn to the number in the songbook. Yeah. <laughs> and they hadn't started first grade yet. Now, do you remember anything about that as far as as teaching them how to find the numbers and recognize that? And oh, when we lived at Trinity, Eddie right, was... Two. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yellow September. That's five. Okay. Well, he would have been three. Okay. Right. The, the Christmas, you know, before we moved to Hansville. And the, the Sears catalog came, mm -hmm. uh, the Christmas catalog. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, he was looking at, they were looking at the toys. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would come, to, they would come to me and ask how much a toy cost. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eddie came to me one time and asked how much this toy cost. He said, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, you see this little K right here beside the, the picture of this mm -hmm. toy? And then you go down here and you look at K, and it'll tell you the price of that. When he was three. When he was that. three. <laughs> <laughs> And so that way he could he could look up the price of every <laughs> every toy in that book. <laughs> and they watched them. Have y'all been shuffling them in each time? What was it? Shuffling the these into the hand and reading. Okay. I think when you play, you're supposed to just keep playing until you run out of cards. That way you don't end up with people. A TV show, that, a children's TV show that was educational. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it. Sure. But they watched that and... Picked up a lot. Yeah, picked up a lot. And uh, uh, what was that TV? <laughs> Electric company, wasn't it? Hmm? Electric company? No. This is, this is back in the dark. <laughs> 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 the very beginning. Beginning of time. Beginning of time. Oh, oh. Captain Kangaroo was one, but there was another one. Anyway, and then, of course, they, uh, with that, they would ask a lot of questions and murders. <laughs> You know, so I think all of my children, even though they didn't have the advantage of kindergarten, were, were ready for first grade. Mm -hmm. Of course, now Jonathan went, he didn't go to kindergarten, but he went to uh, the top child care at, at the school in uh, Gardendale. Gardendale. Mm -hmm. And he went two years to that. They would go. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Two or three days a week. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, uh, when he didn't get, they started kindergarten the year he would have been in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, they tested all of them, mm-hmm. everybody that applied, and they had a class that really needed wow. kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And then they had a second class lottery. Oh. Hmm. To fill it, and he didn't get in, so he went back to Miss O'Lair's Miss O'Lair mm-hmm. school, and then April, all of y'all went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, kindergarten is still not mandatory. What? Kindergarten is still not mandatory in the state of Alabama. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, it's about to be done. Yeah. School. School was not mandatory in Mississippi really? oh. <laughs> when we lived there. The state's about to pass a mandatory kindergarten law now. And they've already got four-year-old kindergarten in some school. Now, now that's being offered in a lot of schools for free. You don't yeah. For poor families and then people who, if there's space after that, families want to see based on their income. Well, I didn't know how that worked. I knew a lot of kids went, but but anyway. So, in Mississippi, when y'all were there, school was not mandatory. No, school was not mandatory. They had to educate the all the blacks if, if it was mandatory. All your generation don't know anything about right. All of that. No. Nope. The very skimming of textbook, but not like not like what you or even you know your kids knew about that. You can come with me. Well, my older children. Right. Oh, the schools were already integrated in Middle Tennessee. Okay. And we moved there. Well, you want all this? Yeah, of course I do. About this. Now hold on. So let me get our timing right. Do you remember when that happened? That the schools in Middle Tennessee. Oh. Began integrating. Oh, this was. Let's see, we moved there in. 64. No, no, yeah. Yeah, 64. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a recent thing in Middle Tennessee. That, okay, that, that so when you moved there, they, they were, were already. In, they were integrating, okay. And uh, uh, of course, the big. Opposition was in Nashville because there was a, huge, a larger population. population, and that was where all of the everything was reported on the news, and they started busing and mm-hmm. all that in uh, in Nashville in in uh, that county, you know. But the surrounding counties integrated. There was very few. Uh, 
what? It, it was predominantly white. But they did have black teachers. And Eddie Vicky had a black teacher in the third grade. Mm -hmm. And they just loved her. Oh, really? <laughs> Do you but, remember her name by chance? I don't remember okay. her name. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, there was, there in, in Dixon County, there was, there was no problems. Did they, as far as the neighbors and people around you, did they seem fine with oh, her yeah. as a teacher oh, and yeah. that all went oh, okay? Yeah. If anybody, I'm, I'm sure there were people that were very prejudiced and you know, didn't mm -hmm. like it and all, but uh, I didn't hear it from anybody. Mm -hmm. All the, hey darling, you want to eat? You go outside? You go outside? Yeah, that's fine. You can go with Aunt April. That's okay. I don't know if it's because I spat her hand so much or what, but it's okay with Aunt April. Yay, small win. <laughs> okay. But, you know, there was no protest. Do you remember much about her just as a person, the teacher? Just, I mean, you said that the Eddie, mom and Eddie really yeah. liked her, or, and do you remember much about her? Oh, well, she was just, she was one of the better educated, I guess, mm -hmm. black, black people, but mm -hmm. she was just a nice person that mm -hmm. you you know, had <laughs> No problem being uh, communicating with her on anything you know about the children, just just like all all teachers have been. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I did have a white teacher in your night of it. Oh, you couldn't communicate. <laughs> But uh, <clears throat> anyway, that's that's later on. Uh, mm -hmm. So we moved to Grenada, okay. and schools were segregated. Okay. And we were at the edge of the Delta, which in Grenada County, uh, the population was probably 50-50, mm. black and white. This is in when you when you talk about integration, there's inner city, suburbs, out in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a whole different subject. Right, right. And I went through all of them. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, the the schools were segregated. The first. Uh, two years we were there, but uh, they were under court order to integrate, and uh, the local could not work out a integration plan. Mm -hmm. So the third year we were there, during spring break, Somebody from the federal government came in 
and integrated the schools. Do you remember what year? Let's see, what would that be? 69 or 68? Okay. Yeah, 69. The 6970 school. Okay. Yes, I'm pretty sure that's. And the way they did it is Jones Road School, a block and a half from our house, was a, a first through eighth grade school, and all four of my children went there. Carla mm -hmm. was in the second, Eddie and Vicky in the Seventh and Martin in sixth. Mm -hmm. And um, after integration, that school was first and second grade for everybody. Mm -hmm. And they had a black teacher and a white teacher had classrooms side by side. The classes were integrated. I mean, the children were integrated in all of them. And in the middle of the day, the teachers swapped rooms. Hmm. So that yes, way, everybody had a black teacher and everybody had a white teacher for a part of the day. Hmm. And uh, the first thing Carla did when we, and, and Carla's, Carla's white teacher was not the one she had had all year up until then. Mm. And tell me again what grade she was in that we had seventh, sixth, second. and second. Okay. And first thing she did the, the first day that I took her out there to school was throw up. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, it was, uh, there were, in a class of 30, there were six spots. It, I, now, which one are you talking about? In Carla's? I'm talking about Carla in second grade. Oh, yeah. In a class of 30, there were three little black girls and three little white boys. Mm. And that left, what, 24 black. Mm -hmm. They already had an academy, and a lot of the people that their children would not go to an integrated school, they started what I call the Fermat. Poor man's private school. <laughs> yes. And they just said, teachers, whoever, mm -hmm. you know, parents taught. To come in. And they they set their school up in a vacated uh, school building. Mm. And, uh, and my children went to three different schools. Mm -hmm. the, after March mm -hmm. that year. And the Bowens, uh, Peggy and Charles Bowling had a uh, first grade little girl and an eighth grade son. Mm -hmm. So Charles would bring on him, and Charles worked downtown Grenada, which mm -hmm. is, you know, when you say downtown, it's Grenada's not that big. But anyway, Charles in the morning would uh, drop Don off at, at my house and he would pick up Eddie and Vicky and Martin. And Eddie and Vicky went to the, they were in the seventh grade and uh, 
David was in eighth, so they went to the same school. But Charles drove by the school where Martin went, and mm -hmm. he just dropped him off. Mm -hmm. So uh, then I would take the little girls to out to Jones Road, the mm -hmm. first and the second grader. And then in the afternoon, Peggy would go get the little girls, and I would go downtown and round up David and Eddie and Vicky and Martin. And Peggy and I'd meet back at my house <laughs> and sort our kids out. <laughs> and, uh, oh, no buses except, well, the Grenada School was, it was the whole county, you know, they, mm -hmm. it wasn't a, a city school and county schools. Mm -hmm. And they had buses for the country people, but, but no buses in town. Hmm. So the parents had to get them there. Mm -hmm. And then the, which was, it was a tense situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so, I mean, and I obviously, I, it would be tense in all the senses, but as far as your relationships with any other parents or any of that kind of stuff did you have any any kind of relationship with any of them like from your kids classes or any of that or oh no oh but i did have uh, the boys played softball so we had some interaction with people in the community and um anyway let's see how was that as far as the, I'm assuming the ball teams and stuff like that was not integrated, it's just oh, no. the education? No, yeah. just education. Uh, but, uh, let's see what was that? Oh, before integration, they had had some black teachers in the in the school at Jones Road, mm -hmm. and it uh, they were definitely uh, it was two young women, mm -hmm. and the one that uh, that Eddie and Vicky had was definitely not not educated to mm -hmm. standards. Mm -hmm. She marked things wrong on their papers when, and I would, that were correct, and I would write a note on there, uh, you know, the page mm -hmm. in the book. Right. Where this yes. is, they had the correct answer. Mm -hmm. So really How did I that go over with having to... Have discussion do that? Well, I don't know because I never did have any feedback. Oh, okay. So that wasn't very. But it it was not pleasant for your children to bring home. <sighs> right. Correct answers with a marked wrong. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but uh, that was just some of the tension. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, several of us parents, went to. Uh, at the 
where the poor aiding Vicky went uh, was the former black elementary, so they had PTA and in place and all. And several of us white parents we went mm -hmm. PTA meetings and you know we tried our best. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, in, in it. <laughs> <laughs> the PTA meetings was like like church, like black church. <laughs> Very spirited. They sang a hymn. Wow. So, I, nobody can tell me anything about integration. <laughs> I'm an expert. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that's that's more you know about that part. So, uh, in the summer, Fulton Dale called Ed and asked him to move. Okay, so we're in sixty. We're in seventy. Or seventy, I mean, 70. yeah, seventy. Okay. So, summer of 70. Summer of 70. Okay. And our children begged Ed to move. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the the Bowens I was talking about that we carpooled, mm -hmm. he, he was in soil conservation, and that summer, he was working in New York on an urban renewal project. Mm -hmm. He took a job in Oneonta, Alabama, oh. on the phone. Oh. <laughs> Came home for a weekend and put their house on the market. Oh, wow. And they moved mm -hmm. to Oneonta that summer. And, uh, and of course, leaving, leaving the church, uh, in Grenada, that's uh, Wayne Fancher was one of the elders, and he he told me, he said, I don't blame you at all. Because mm. his, his youngest child was in the ninth grade mm -hmm. when they integrated, so, mm -hmm. and he was a boy. So. Yeah, so a and, lot of their inner, so a lot of their begging was directly related to the integration yeah, and the, the schools being all, yeah. Okay. okay. We get to Fultondale. I'll continue the integration. Sure. We get to Fultondale, and some of the church members are members of a, a group they have formed called uh, Concerned Parents. And they were so concerned with the integration, which was 10% black. Mm. And I, Ed says I said it. I, I, I thought I just thought it. <laughs> but anyway, I said, I said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know a thing about interviews. <laughs> and I probably said it. <laughs> The black teachers that that uh, that y'all had at uh, uh, 
Fulton Elementary? At Fultondale, or Torquoth. Uh, there was one math teacher that Jonathan had in mm -hmm. sixth grade that he would come home completely lost. Lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ed would sit down with him and uh, educate him mm -hmm. <laughs> on that chapter they were on. And All right, let me pause you to ask this on timeline. So, Mississippi began the integration 69, right, end of. Or I mean the end of the sixty nine seventy. Yeah. So seven beginning of seventy. Mm -hmm. So had Alabama already integrated before Mississippi was forced to? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. And of course Birmingham City schools were predominantly black. Mm-hmm. But uh, the county schools were yeah. I guess most of them were the ballots. So did you all, did Pompal or did he have conversations with those members about integrate their feelings about integration and, and all the turmoil going on there or how did that play out with oh, some uh, of the members? Well, the, the families that really we didn't, everybody did their own thing. Yeah. You know, they, as far as the church members went, there wasn't any. Okay, so you're saying this was members of just Fulton Dale's community. No, not, I'm saying oh, they are members of the church. The church. Okay, all right. Nelda Goodwin was one of them. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm not kidding. Wow. But uh, she was the only one I know of that I remember that mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. so upset. Right. And did she, how did that play out over time? Did she? Well, you know, there was. Like I said, that, that school was not in a great. They had a few black children and a few black teachers. Right. It was. Yeah. But for was, her world, it was. Yeah. It was very not, disturbing. Yes. It was not okay. And uh, mm. uh, there might have been others that felt that way, but they didn't, Voice they it. didn't join the concern. Parents. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm. But anyway, okay. CPO. CPO. Concerned Parents Organization. CPO. Yeah, CPO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different concerns. Exactly. But. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, okay. But back to Grenada. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, like I said, they had a few black teachers mm -hmm. and it was freedom of choice so if black children had registered mm -hmm. at the white schools they would have had to let them go but no, none did mm -hmm. and um, so uh, you 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 chose the school you wanted your children to go to when we moved there 
Hmm. And all the black parents uh, chose black schools, and all the white parents chose white schools. Mm hmm. Hmm. So and you're saying that's before the forced integration? Yeah, before the forced integration. So it wasn't that there was no, there wasn't, it wasn't that there were no opportunities for education for black children. It's just that there was no intermingling between whites and blacks. And uh, another thing, uh, Ed's doctor, when Ed, uh, when he had the, the phlebitis and the bleeding ulcer, mm -hmm. was a black man and he was, uh, he was in the 11th grade at Grenada, Mississippi when, when they integrated. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is interesting. But anyway, uh, and Ed asked him, he said, how in the world, and he was, he was in his field, he was highly respected huh. in Birmingham, and Ed asked him, he said, how did a black boy from Grenada, Mississippi <laughs> make a doctor? <laughs> and and one that's yeah that's as as respected as mm -hmm. you are. Mm -hmm. And he said, Well my daddy delivered furniture for uh, a tr a furniture store. And he said, my parents saw that we were educated. Said mm -hmm. I had sisters older than me that went to college mm -hmm. and they knew how to get scholarships. And I went to college and, mm -hmm. you know, scholarships and then worked on mm -hmm. the medical school. Wow. He said it was just, just that our parents were determined that, they expected that we it. would be educated. Wow. <laughs> but uh, anyway, hmm. uh, and tell me that doctor's name again. Oh, Willie Williams. <laughs> and he, give me one more time. He operated on Paul. No, he didn't no. operate. He treated him for bleeding ulcers. Treated him. And oh, bleeding ulcers. Uh, was that in Fulton? Where was that? At Bleeding Lord Nolan. Oh, okay. He was at Lord Nolan. He's at uh, oh, another, you know, they closed down Lord Nolan. He's at another, he may be retired by now because that was in uh, 90, 92. Mm -hmm. That awful so, year. Yeah, right. So, uh, how did how did that topic even come up? That that he yeah, they just started talking, and both of them were in Grenada. And okay, interesting. Oh, Ed probably asked him, you know, where'd where you're from. Up? Yeah, right. And that came up. <laughs> you know, Ed always mm -hmm. talked to everybody. <laughs> right. And we were using Dr. Alexander at that time, and he was uh, officially retired, and he was a uh, he was employed. By, he didn't have 
hospital privileges. Mm -hmm. He just was a, I don't remember what they call him anyway, he just saw patients. Okay. You know, um, Mm -hmm. in in his office and if they had to be admitted to the hospital somebody else mm -hmm. wow and of course he dr alexander selected mm -hmm. dr williams for it because he said he's the best wow okay so all right fultonell we're back at let's see uh full okay so summer of 70 you moved to Fultondale. Yeah. Okay. And are introduced to people who don't know about integration. <laughs> <laughs> don't know a thing about it. <laughs> okay. All right. And I, this is about where we got to yesterday. Okay. I'm going to pause here. We'll start with 70 okay. tomorrow, if that's okay. All right. Tell us about Papa's engagement before your Well, engagement. he was engaged to, uh, uh, Joanne Hooper, who had twin brother, Jimmy, that is a professor at, uh, where'd you, oh, Aaron's mother. Aaron's mother, he was a professor wherever she went to college, UAH, I guess. And when she was in college, she was a, some kind of an assistant or something anyway to Jimmy. But uh, it was, she was still a senior in high school when they were engaged. They hadn't been broke up too long. <laughs> Ooh. Well, well, what caused? Well, because y'all got married, they well, could have been broke up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, wait. I mean, when he went, well, they broke up. They broke up she, when he went to First Harvard the year before I met her. And uh, I met him. And uh, well, do you know what caused the breakup? I, well, I think I, <laughs> uh -oh. I think she got interested in the in the guy that she wound up marrying. Oh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> she went. They were. They lived at Belgrade. Okay. They went to Belgrade. And, uh, I mean, she went to high school at Belgrade. But anyway, that's that's what I know about them. She broke it off. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And what? Now, now Eddie's. Okay, Eddie was... That's all right. I, I don't know why Eddie. they broke up. Oh, this is in, this is Teresa's engagement ring. That's right. I I do not remember this. What? When they broke up, Papa bought it from Martin and gave it to Granny. What happened to yours? I never did have What? I never did have an engagement. But didn't his first engagement, didn't she throw the ring? She threw the ring at him. So he learned from that. This one Nora did the ball. But they got married now. And anyway, uh, they broke up, and uh, I don't know why, but he and Jane were dating again. And he come home one night, and uh, he said, uh, 
I'm going back to see Teresa. And well, he came in our bedroom. We were, we'd already gone to bed. He came in our bedroom and said, I'm going back to see Teresa. And he said, Jane wants me to be certain. Jane seemed back to the other one. Wow. And Ed, the, the only time I ever heard him say this to anybody, he looked at Martin and he says, you're a fool. <laughs> <laughs> well, did he listen to him? What? Did Martin did listen back? to him or did he go back? Well, he, he went back. Uh, I, I don't know that they really dated, but it, it at least went back and Have talked to him. And uh, <clears throat> then when that was all over <laughs> and he came back to Jane, Juanita <laughs> says, if he does you that way again, I'm gonna kill him. <laughs> and and Jane said you'd have to stand in line behind his mama and daddy. <laughs> oh, that's good. I love it. So you know the whole story now. <sighs> okay, ladies, we are going to start on Jeremiah chapters 36 through 39, but just real quick before we dive in, I thought I would explain a couple of things. Um, obviously, this is a different kind of recording than the Zoom. We've swapped to just the audio in hopes that that will just tamp down on some of the technical problems we have from time to time. So I hope this is still... Um, not only beneficial, but easy for everyone to be able to get access to. If you have any problems or if anyone is unable to um, listen to this, if, if y'all would let me know if you hear from anybody who wasn't able to open it or, or any issues like that, please let me know so we can get that worked on. But it should be as straightforward as the Zoom. You just click the link and you'll be able to hear um, this recording. So um, starting us off with the... Um, with this section, um, we're doing a little bit of a different thing. I thought we would kind of give a preview before we dive into each chapter and offer sort of our hot takes on things before um, diving into each chapter separately. And so I'm going to start with my hot take. This is uh, Summer talking. And I was just struck through these chapters at... Zedekiah, I mean, we've talked all along the way about Zedekiah being a vacillating king, and wow, um, is that ever true in these chapters? And anyway, so my hot take is that you just, I mean, who, there is no one that I can think of that I would respect that acts the way Zedekiah does, and that's, there's just, there's no, I wouldn't say there's no redeeming qualities but, you know, when you think in, in terms of character, so to speak, that's certainly not, you know, a shining light or anything like that. So anyway, that was my hot take for 36 through 39. So Sherry, you said you had one. Okay, well, when you asked me that, 
I thought immediately of something that I've been thinking about all day. Um, because, um, oddly enough, this morning, um, after our Amos study, totally unrelated, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but Seth brought up the fact that um, 10 years ago, at least, Nathan Quinn preached a sermon one time that he tried to equate to this scene where Jehoiakim is cutting up the word of Jeremiah and throwing it in the fire, whereby he stood up and was giving the sermon and was talking about the things that are in the scriptures that we don't really like to hear and how when we don't regard those, it's like what Jehoiakim was doing, which is basically just cutting it up and saying, well, I'm just cutting that up so, so now it doesn't apply. And so he was tearing pages out of a Bible um, and tossing them on the, wadding them up and tossing them on the floor. And so that was, that was like, so this is like a hot take on a hot take because, <laughs> because, um, so now, 11 years later, we're still talking about it. <laughs> And even making reference to it offhand as if, oh, you remember that time. Um, but I, I got thinking about it and I thought, you know, um, because it was, it was controversial. It made us all sit up straight and uh, some of us were thinking, oh yeah, that makes sense. And some of us were thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is just a little too graphic of an example and who do you think you are and so but I got thinking about it today and I was like you know that although you know most illustrations don't go as far as the actual thing sure. but um, so Nathan tearing the pages out of a copy of something that we have four bazillion copies of in the world and that he probably had another one or two copies of within arm's reach of him is different than Jehoiakim tearing up and burning something that there was only one copy of. Mm -hmm. And um, it was sort of like the difference between tearing up a magazine and tearing up and burning a copy of, you know, or the original Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't like you, it was like you couldn't get another one. Like, <laughs> and so, and so, um, that's um, my Jehoiakim doing that um, was ju is just um, you know you were talking about Zedekiah's character Jehoiakim's character um, that's 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 what I remember about Jehoiakim and um, and consequently that's what I remember about you know the whole controversy with Nathan and and uh, Seth about whether he should do that or not. Um, and we're still talking about it 11 years later, and we'll probably still continue to talk about it. Um, and so there's still opinions one way or the other. But um, so, yeah, that, that, um, that whole scene um, um, just sort of burns into my memory as a thing that is just not a good idea. <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, and Jehoiakim showing uh, how 
rebellious he was against God's word. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's not like he thought, oh, well, if I tear this up, then it's like God didn't say it. It, it was more symbolic of his attitude towards God. Right. Very good. I love that. That's a great setup for when we mm-hmm. get into that chapter. And I want to mm-hmm. say that's the first chapter, right? Mm-hmm. 36. Okay. And Elizabeth, did you have a hot take from this section? Yeah, I, I guess this was just a really hard time for Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's imprisoned. He's thrown into pretty much a mostly dried up well and sinking into the mud. Um, it's just getting, it's getting really serious in his persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that he's still prophesying to Judah, warning them of their destruction, um, trying to help out Zedekiah, mm-hmm. even though he's not taking it very seriously. Um, it just shows the dedication that Jeremiah has to God's word, even when he's enduring a lot of terrible stuff. Yeah. Well, and I, I really appreciate Jeremiah's response the next time mm-hmm. when you read Zedekiah coming back to him again and he was like what are you gonna what are you gonna do with what I tell you and I'm like thank you Jeremiah because that's exactly what I'm thinking is like this this guy needs to show off because this is just (laughs) ridiculous so anyway but we need to dive in so we'll have enough time um we'll start with 36 reading all the way through and Elizabeth do you mind reading all of 36 for us yeah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah king of Judah This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, And Baruch wrote on a scroll, at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people, in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, and that every one will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama the secretary, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Jemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi the son of Nethaniah 
son of Shelemiah, son of Cushai, to say to Baruch, take in, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they returned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, We must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, Baruch, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, He dictated all these words to me, while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was in the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afra was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when El Nathan and Deliah and Jemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Take another scroll, and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. Okay. Sherry, let's start with you. What are observations did you pull from that chapter? Um, okay. So, other than, um, than the obvious um, Jehoiakim uh, acting in a completely, utterly rebellious way, showing complete contempt for God's word um, and for what God had to say, like I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, uh, that's the main thing that stands out to me. There are several other things, though. Um, uh, at the beginning, he says, uh, he starts to write the things down in the fourth year, and then they read them 
to the king in the fifth year, which means it took a long time to write that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't at the end of the fourth year and the beginning of the fifth year. I'm, I'm, taking, I'm guessing it, it, it was a long time. And so what did he write? Well, he wrote, and this is Jehoiakim's reign, so he wrote all the things that, had, that God had told Jeremiah up to that point. There's still a lot more to happen, so it's not like the whole book of Jeremiah. It's mostly just everything that's happened up to that point and all the words that God has told him up to this point. Um, and so that still took a year for them to write. Um, uh, then um, um, uh, there's a mention of the fourth year of Jehoiakim at the beginning, like I said. Um, the other significant thing about that is that the fourth year of Jehoiakim, we've talked about this before, the fourth year of Jehoiakim was a pivotal year uh, in world history because the fourth year of Jehoiakim was the same year that Nebuchadnezzar took Carchemish away from Egypt. And that was the turning point that caused Babylon to be considered the world-dominating power. Mm -hmm. That, that um, battle where he took, because previously... Egypt was was able to to save them off during Josiah's uh, well, at the end of jo Josiah's reign, and so the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was able to take Carchemish that was a pivotal point, and that was where um, Nebuchadnezzar's reign was fully established over that part of the of the the world, um, uh, and also notice that um, in verses two and three. Um, God is still hoping that they will repent. So at this point, um, all is not lost, uh, and God is still, even after all that's gone on before, um, God is still hoping that it will do something to, uh, God says in uh, verse 3, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So maybe if we write it down, mm -hmm. then, you know, it'll have some different effect than just talking. It, um, <clears throat> it doesn't, but, um, but um, it, this is just God continually being patient with them, hoping that, okay, maybe if we do it this way, maybe they'll repent, doing everything he possibly can to get them to, to come back. Um, uh then also notice that um, uh, in the in the transferring of what's been written to um, uh, to in the in the um, what goes on between Baruch writing the scroll and it being read in the presence of the king, we have. Uh, messengers, and we, we have again a mention of the sons of Shaphan. Mm -hmm. I remember that Shaphan was, um, uh, was the one who brought the message to Josiah um, that uh, we found the scroll and it's not looking good for us. Right. Um, and so these, this is a grandson, I believe, um, uh, of, of Shaphan and um, uh, he it says that uh, he was uh, he was the son of Gemariah who was the son of Shaphan. So this is a grandson of Shaphan. Um, we have 
this have sons of Shaphan mentioned also in chapter 26, 29. Uh, in 2 Kings 22 and 23 is where Shaphan is mentioned. And then Ezekiel chapter 8 is uh, Jazaniah, who would be an uncle of, the, of this Micaiah, um, who was sort of like the black sheep of the family because um, he, was, he was not a good guy. So um, the, the family of Shaphan is mentioned here again. Um, and, uh, and also there's like a contrast here, I think, between, um, uh, and this, this just goes to the literary structure again, um, that we have Josiah who burned the idols and we have Jehoiakim who burned the word of God. Um, and so, um, this is another, like I said, it's, it's sort of a, um, a throwback to what the, what the structure of the book is and how, how sometimes in poetic uh, prophecy books like this, you have the same thing showing up at the beginning and at the end, or at the beginning and somewhere else and then somewhere else, which, um, which is uh, borne out by just the structure of how, how it's written down. And so um, uh, those are the only things that I had that stood out to me. Okay. Um, on... Only thing I would say in addition to that as far as things that stood out to me was just one additional. So you were mentioning the, you know, Baruch had the hit from the time that Baruch has written this to the time it gets to the king and that time in between where you've got all these officials or officers or Mm -hmm. I guess it's officials is what mine says, Mm -hmm. um, that he comes and presents it to, I just... was interesting to me that you know okay go hide yourself get this you know wrapped up in a tomb um and and we'll go and then they when they go and tell it to him he says go get the scroll so again you know like you're saying just another reiteration of his defiant nature it's not just you know like a pharaoh who is this lord no go get the scroll Mm -hmm. and we're we're annihilating this message altogether Mm -hmm. um and, and I do, like you were saying, I think that was more of a show than anything for him to, you know, do that in front of whoever was in the court, you know, of kind of puffing out his chest or whatever. So that was just interesting to me um, that he, you know, it really, I felt like was a, um, a deep penetrating problem for him, not just, one, not listening, but two, going to the, the um, degree that he did to show how defiant he was. So, anyway. Elizabeth? You know, I think just something I kind of want to tack on to that general discussion of what happens between the writing and the king hearing it is that the officials, when they hear it, they're legitimately concerned, and they're like, hey, we need to bring this to the king. Mm-hmm. And when they read through the scroll, um, they're fearful. Which So mm-hmm. they have the right reaction and I think if these if, if um shoot Jehoiakim had the right sort of attitude the right sort of heart they probably could have swayed him to make some make some changes but yeah like we've been saying this whole time just the sheer defiance and refusal to accept the truth the refusal to um repent is really the the beginning of the end for Judah. Okay, let's jump into chapter 37 next. 
Now Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Yet King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shalemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. Now Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people, for they had not yet put him in the prison. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who had been besieging Jeremiah, or sorry, besieging Jerusalem, heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. Then the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel." Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against the city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go. For even if you had defeated the entire army of Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. And now it happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army that Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there from among the people. While he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard, whose name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there, and he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are going to go over to the Chaldeans. But Jeremiah said, A lie, I am not going over to the Chaldeans. Yet he would not listen to him. So Erijah arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. When the, Then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is, the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and in his palace the king secretly asked him and said, Is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You will be given into the land, into the hand of the king of Babylon. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, In what way have I sinned against you, or against your servants, or against this people, that you have put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you, or against this land? But now please listen, O my lord the king, please let my petition come before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, that I may not die there. Then king Zedekiah gave commandment, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the baker's street, until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. Okay, Elizabeth, would you like to start us off? Sure. Yeah. So I feel like this chapter says just as much about Zedekiah as it does about Jeremiah and the things that happened to him. So some of the things that stood out to me was that he's really only, Zedekiah is really only turning to Jeremiah and turning to the Lord 
when it's pretty evident that they're pretty much past the point of no return. Or if they're not there yet, they're definitely really close. Because even in that first section, it says, Zedekiah's never listened to Jeremiah or the words of the Lord. The people haven't listened to them. But now it's getting, it's getting like really serious and the battle's heating up. And they think there might be some relief because the Chaldeans are retreating and the Egyptians are coming to help them. And so maybe he's just looking for a good word from the Lord and praying him that, you know, maybe this will turn out okay. But this seems very performative because he hasn't taken any action to actually change. But now that there's hope, he's like, oh, maybe we can just ask God if things will be okay. And it doesn't really work like that. Like, you should have changed months, years ago. Um, and then there's, you know, the prophecy that you think the Egyptians are coming to help you. They're not. Y'all are still going to get destroyed by the Babylonians. Mm -hmm. um, nice try, Zedekiah, but you're going to have to try a little harder mm -hmm. than that. Um, and then the, the second section is interesting. I'm assuming he's going to get the land that he bought from his cousin in mm -hmm. the previous chapters. Mm -hmm. Um you know, was a symbolic gesture at that point. Like, this mm -hmm. land wasn't of any use to him at this point. He's just minding his own business, and they arrest him. So, um, at this point, I really think they're looking for any arbitrary reason to shut Jeremiah up. Because, obviously, he's saying things that, number one, they don't appreciate. Number two, they don't want to believe. So, they're conflating the message with the messenger. Mm -hmm. Just throwing him in jail. And then we see Zedekiah again, and he's like, hey, did God tell you anything? Um, and Jeremiah's like, why do you hate me? <laughs> um, and still tells him, y'all are going to be delivered into the hand of Babylon. Like, nothing's changed. You haven't changed, therefore, the message isn't going to change. Um, you can almost see, like, the frustration that Jeremiah has here. Like, what, have I, what wrong have I done to you? Because he really hasn't done anything wrong. He's just telling them what God has said and it's their fault for not listening or repenting. Mm -hmm. So we have, I have a lot of sympathy for Jeremiah here. Um, but also, yeah, you kind of hate Zedekiah a little mm -hmm. bit more because he kind of pretends like he cares and then doesn't actually do anything, which mm -hmm. doesn't make for a great leader. Right. All right, Sherry. Um, I think this at this point, and even in, in the next chapters, um, we'll see even more, that um, Zedekiah is just the quintessential crooked politician. Mm -hmm. He's like just riding the fence, trying to lick his finger and stick it up into the wind to see which way it's blowing, and whichever way it's blowing, that's the way he's going. Mm -hmm. um, he... he um, um, uh, in the next chapter, they want to arrest Jeremiah, and he's like, well, I guess I can't do anything about it if you do, so sure. Right. And so it's like he's on Jeremiah's side when he feels it's advantageous to be on Jeremiah's side, when he thinks maybe Jeremiah ha might have something to offer him, mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, he doesn't even really want anybody to know that he's, you know, like, don't tell anybody that I'm helping you out here, but... Yeah. Um, um, I just wrote down here on my notes that Zedekiah is weak and pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good summary. So, um, 
because he really basically is just listening to whoever. If, if his officials are telling him something, then he's like, okay, we'll go with that. If Jeremiah's telling him something else, he's like, okay, we'll go with that. Just don't tell anybody that I listened to you because mm-hmm. it wouldn't look good for me. Um, and he's the king. <laughs> it's yeah. like, seriously? <laughs> like, like, you're afraid of the people that work for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, uh, which also shows that he's really not a king that's in charge. He's yeah. basically just a vassal king. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, the only things, uh, oh yeah, and, and I had um, I had written down here um, that um, so when when it says in verse twenty one that he was taken into the king's court, basically that's sort of like I took it to mean sort of like he's being taken into protective custody. Right. So he was so. Some people um, that I that I read said, well, he was in prison, and then the king takes him and then puts him back into prison. But I, I don't think it's like prison, prison. I think it's like protective custody. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll keep you here, and that way you know, nobody else can hurt you. Mm-hmm. And um, although... That's what I would take from the, bait, from the bread yeah, commentary. Yeah, they're feeding him and, and keeping him in protective custody, mm-hmm. as like you would do someone who's a who's a star witness or something right um but um it's the jeremiah is still yeah like you said it's jeremiah is still basically saying you're not gonna listen so why are you even asking me mm-hmm. why are you asking me the, que- the same question that you asked me before and i already gave you the answer and you know what the answer is going to be now mm-hmm. it's not changed mm-hmm. so the only additional thing is that i back in verse 15 when uh, where it says the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and then put him in jail. And, you know, just how often we see that theme through Scripture where you've got unrighteous people uh, acting upon their emotions and not out of logic. And that is, it is so frustrating to see. But again, you know, that's not something that's uncommon that we haven't seen, you know, present day. Anyway, and also just a sobering reminder to us to you know to be careful and everything be guided like like jeremiah guided through what's the will of god um and that is that is so impressive to me where he comes and my inclination would tell him be to tell him to buzz off but i i do think it's interesting you know in this chapter where he says you know he tells him the same message and then says you know in what way have i sinned you know just um, you know, I, I just think how many times are we in the realm of people who are either acting idiotically or cowardly or, you know, any of these things that Zedekiah could be labeled with, but still, you know, there's that entreaty and that to whatever degree of respect we can offer that and work with these, you know, with people and try to help them now. Obviously, like with Zedekiah, that doesn't mean that fruit will be born necessarily. But I do think it's so impressive to see that in Jeremiah and a good example for us. So, all right, 38. We will start there. And uh, Sherry, do you mind reading through 38? Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, 
Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of uh, Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. When Ebel Melech, the Ethiopian, Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate. Ebel Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Abel Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed Melech took the men with him, and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in the house in the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, you will surely put me to death. And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of, the ho of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the kings, to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and you sh your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, You trusted friends, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you, and come to you and say to you, Tell us what you said to the king, and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us, 
and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. Okay. So, a lot of narrative uh, in this chapter. Um, but we've got where uh, Jeremiah is lured into the, the well um, that Elizabeth alluded to earlier on. Um, and all, well, let me back up. Uh, the first section where um, he, you know, goes over the same message. If you stay in the city, here's what will happen. But if you give your life up, then it will be, you know, a ransom to you. Um, which I appreciate that. I think yours said a prize. Mine says booty. And, of course, as you know, I have mm -hmm. toddlers. So, you know, goofy things enter my mind. But prize. Um, mm -hmm. You will stay alive. And, you know, it can't, I can't help but my mind go to the New Testament, those who lose their life for my sake will find it um you know and kind of a foreshadowing of that sort of thing and uh again all throughout scripture we see that that's what god desires um but they will not do that um anyway verse four the officials come and are ready to put him to death and then, you know, hey, better than that, let's just lower him into the, um, to the cistern to die. Um, and, it, you know, and then it, this wonderful Ethiopian comes and uh, pleads for Jeremiah's life. And um, <laughs> it is just so interesting to me. Like, Sherry, you had mentioned this before. You know, Zedekiah's role here of, you know, well, I mean, whatever pleases the people. Um, and so they, he, you know, allowed them to bring them back out of the pit when he had also allowed them to drop them in it, drop them in it. So um, anyway, when Zedekiah comes again, this is just so frustrating to me. Um, you know, He's very honest with him, Jeremiah is, and is like, look, you're just going to put me to death and you're not going to take my advice. And I love the way that you read that. Look, if you do this, I promise. And it's like he's looking around like nobody's listening, right? And then, you know, at the end of the chapter, it's, you know, saying, okay, it was fine because nobody heard this. And anyway, it's just such a sad commentary on Zedekiah's character as a person. Um, and... Again, well, it goes to my hot take. Of, look, if you're going to be a godly leader, you've got to not be a coward. And that's, you know, all I can see in Zedekiah is, is that. Um, much like Ahab in my mind. But um, anyway, the, the the rest of the narrative, we've got um, this part that I, I don't know. And I would like to hear your notes on this, Sherry, because I feel like you probably... Uh, have insight to this is verse 22 where we've got that quotation your close friends have misled and overpowered you while your feet were sunk in the mire they turned back and I would like to know um, more about that because I, I don't um, and then uh, so that was more of a question that I brought up when I was going through this that I had um, and 
the last thing um, that I noted was uh, at the very end, um, Jeremiah stayed in the courthouse or the guardhouse. So I, I, I do, I, in all of this, you see to me God's providence of while this is, seems like maybe the hardest time period of a very difficult life, which to me that's, you know, anyway, it's it's almost like, what is that, archipelago at Gulag? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like the roughest of the rough, but the whole life was pretty rough yeah, <laughs> for <so> Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, you know, even with that, there are just these sort of um, places of, okay, God still is, in a sense, there is this protection that is, you know, uh, that we can see. And that's what uh, came to mind in verse 28 when, you know, he's back in the guardhouse after all that, you know, craziness. So, anyway, uh, Sherry and then Elizabeth after that. Okay, well, to your question, um, so I was going to address that in uh, just, um, so it's, it's a vision that um, mm-hmm. that Jeremiah has. Um, so, um I was going to address that just in the context of um, what I noticed in this in, in this chat. This is a very um, sort of poetic chapter. Um, we talked about before the chiastic structure where it's A, B, C, D, C, B, A. This chapter seems to be more A, B, C, D, E. A, B, C, D, E, so it's more like a parallel. Mm -hmm. So you have Jeremiah being sunk in the mud, and then later he has a vision of Zedekiah being sunk in the mud. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, I think, um, I think that's, um, I think that's just, it's just a literary device um, uh, that will take something that actually happened to Jeremiah and um, not saying that Zedekiah is literally going to be sunk in the mud, but figuratively. Um, so what happened to Jeremiah is sort of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Zedekiah figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because you have, um, so you have, at the beginning of the chapter, you have A, Jeremiah warns the people to surrender in order to live. And then later in the chapter, you have A, again, Jeremiah warns Zedekiah to surrender in order to live. Then you have B, Zedekiah gives Jeremiah into the official's hands. And then you have B, later, Jeremiah is not thrown into prison. So he's thrown into prison. He's not thrown into prison. Um, Then you have C, Jeremiah sinks in the mud. Then you have C, um, uh, Zedekiah sinking into the mud. Um, so then you have D, the Ethiopian saves Jeremiah from the officials and D, Zedekiah saves Jeremiah from the officials. And then E, Jeremiah remains in the court and that's almost a direct quote. And then E, at the end of the chapter, Jeremiah remains in the court. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, uh, and then you also have, um, you also have, they, they mention several times in the chapter about hands. So you have it in verse 3, 4, 5, 16, twice in verse 18, verse 19, and verse 23, 
you have people being given into other people's hands and people's hands being used to to save people um, so that's interesting to me also um, um, uh, it's interesting that who knew there was more than one Ethiopian eunuch um, this is an Ethiopian eunuch that um, I think people in that day and time wouldn't consider an Ethiopian eunuch to be anybody and so it kind of reminds me it's like a sort of like a good Samaritan story because it's actually an Ethiopian eunuch that saves Jeremiah just some random dude that is not even a Jew um, that comes to Jeremiah's rescue and 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 uh, the the whole detail about him you know providing him with rags to put under his armpit so that uh, so that the rope doesn't tear him, you know, when they're pulling him up out of there. Seems like, you know, this guy is pretty, is a decent guy. He's very concerned about Jeremiah's welfare. He's not just concerned about getting him up out of there, but he's concerned about making sure that he's, you know, taken well care of. And um, so I think um, that just shows that um, maybe that people who were um, not of Jewish heritage were in a more compassionate um, frame of mind than people who were. And so that uh, doesn't speak very well of Zedekiah or any of his officials who weren't even really concerned about Jeremiah's comfort level one way or the other. Um, uh, and so that's interesting to me. Um, uh, but Jeremiah continues to say <laughs> to Zedekiah, look, just give up and you'll be fine. I've been telling you this over and over and over again. Zedekiah um, is continuing to play the politician and try to play both ends, you know, and say, okay, well, just, you know, tell me what, what you have to say. Don't hold anything back. But don't tell anybody that you told me this because, you know, then, you know, it won't look good for me. And, uh, and, and Jeremiah complies because he doesn't want to go back to the cistern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Um, uh, at least he's being kept in protective custody again, or still, um, and that's a better situation than being in the cistern and dying in a couple of days. Um, I just can't imagine anything more terrible than, than that. But, um, so yeah, um, just Zedekiah is, is really not in a, in a position and he's not the kind of person who's going to make any decisions at all. He's just basically doing whatever he feels is going to benefit him the least and hurt hurt the least amount right now. All right, Elizabeth. Yeah, I didn't really have much to add that hasn't already been said. I know we've ragged on Zedekiah enough, <laughs> but it also just makes me really sad that he's afraid of his own people. <laughs> Um, specifically the ones that have deserted to the Chaldeans. And what's kind of shocking to me about this is Jeremiah has just said, hey, if you let the Chaldeans take you, you'll be fine. And obviously these people must have heard that and gone and joined them and just subjected themselves to that rule and been like, okay, we're joining the Chaldeans. We're good. We're safe. We're doing what God has told us we need to do mm -hmm. to keep our lives spared. And... Zedekiah is afraid of these people. And Jeremiah is like, they're doing the right thing. You need to be doing what they're doing. Like, don't be afraid of them. And it's just it's just really sad. I don't... I say we've ragged on him enough, 
he could be ragged on a fair amount more. <laughs> um, they do think that the poetic structure was a really interesting thing that I never would have picked up on, so I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, I, and I do too. That's only something that recently I've become aware of, and um, now just start to me, uh, in a sense, starting to see that for the first time in a lot of areas in scripture, and so that's so helpful to give some sort of organization and just beauty, you know, where you've got those little anchor points and and the parallelism and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it really does help to kind of cement it further in our minds. So I think that was done, obviously, on purpose and done so well. And I really appreciate that. Lamentations, we won't get off on that, but wow, it's a very beautiful um, rendition of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so another time, another session. Okay, chapter 39, I'm going to read through. And um, we'll wrap up after that. Now when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nergal Sarzar, Samgar Nebu, Sarsakim, the Rab Saris, Nargal Sarsazar, the Rab Mag, and the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and he went out toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah, in the hand of, excuse me, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to keep him, to bring him to Babylon. The Chaldeans also burned with fire the king's palace and the house, houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. As for the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had gone over to him, and the rest of the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, named carried them into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, left behind in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him and look after him and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, sent word along with Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, and Nergar-Sarazer, the Rabmag, and all the leading officials of the king of Babylon. They even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him home. So he stayed among the people. Now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guardhouse, saying, 
go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you will not be given into the hands of the men whom you dread. For I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as, as a prize because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. I love that. It's such a wonderful chapter to end on. Elizabeth, what were your observations from that chapter? So, the first chunk of this is just kind of sad, but it is all the stuff that Jeremiah has talked about happening finally happens. And we can see that Zedekiah never decides to trust in the Lord and decides to trust in his own strength and the strength of... Um, like his counselors and the people he's with, and he runs away. And it's almost like a final act of cowardice. Like, he's just been bouncing around this whole time. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't really know what he believes. He's just, you know, playing both sides that maybe it'll work out for him. And him playing both sides is ultimately what makes it not work out for him because, um, you know, he's not doing what he's been told. He has not been following the advice of Jeremiah, so he gets killed. And he, what Jeremiah has said this whole time is going to happen, happens to him. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really interesting is some people are taken into exile, but they leave the poorest of the poor. The people who are, you know, dying in the streets, um, people who the law generally would provide for like there's provisions for the poor in the old law but the law has been completely abandoned so they're just neglected and i think this kind of shows god's mercy and justice because they're given vineyards and fields so they're finally being taken care of they're not being taken care of by god's people they're being taken care of by their captors by the babylonians um and i think that ties in to the little chunk of verses from 11 to 14 where Nebuchadnezzar specifically says like, hey, y'all gotta listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah knows what's up. Um, <laughs> and so they treat Jeremiah well. And it just shows how far is, how bad Israel's gotten that God is using this nation to give, to give justice and mercy to people that the Israel, or the yeah, the Israelites should have been taken care of. Um, I guess just the last thing I wanted to say real quick was the last little bit about Ebed-Melech. Um, since he rescued Jeremiah and was trusting the Lord, he was ultimately spared from this destruction as well. Yeah. All right, Sherry, we've got two minutes before we're cut off, so anything you want to throw in there to wrap us up? Um, uh, not really. I, I think... Uh, Another mention of a son of, or grandson of, of uh, Shaphan, mm -hmm. Gedaliah, who we are going to see in the future is going to become the governor. Um, uh, also, um, this is a really important story because it's mentioned four different times in Scripture. It's uh, Jeremiah twice, and it's also in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, prophecy that's that's fulfilled that your sons are going to be slaughtered in front of you. 
when that happens. Also that he would go to Babylon, but he wouldn't see it, which seems like an odd thing. And how can that be? Well, because he saw, and he would, would see Nebuchadnezzar, but he wouldn't see Babylon. So how's that possible? He sees Nebuchadnezzar somewhere else, and then they gouge out his eyes, and then they take him to Babylon. So, uh, and that prophecy is in Ezekiel. Um, and so um, it's just, uh, it's really sad that um, Zedekiah, even when it's looking like, okay, you're going to be taken captive, he still tries to run away. It's mm -hmm. like, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar can't even force him to surrender. He has to be overtaken. Mm -hmm. um, it's really sad. It is. Um, and just just such a beautiful mixture. I do, you know, the, the starting with the sadness of the city being absolutely destroyed, um, burned down, and then only the poor left. Um, and then coupled with God still is going to take care of the righteous, you know, not just Jeremiah, but the Ethiopian. And it's, that's, to me, that's, that is such a beautiful comfort in such sorrow and such a desperate and horrible um, setting. So we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll catch you next week.